This episode was co-produced with Startup Days, the leading startup conference in Switzerland. Swisspreneur's goal is to advance entrepreneurship in Switzerland, so we've partnered up with Startup Days to produce five episodes with key Swiss ecosystem players. If you'd like to see them up close and personal, get your ticket for Startup Days 2022, taking place on May 19th in Bern. Visit startupdays.ch. Together, we make Switzerland more startup. I met people that were driven with their goal of growing their platform and their thoughts always were like making the platform better every day and walk out in the evening that, and have achieved something and not just done some work. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Oliver, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. You are the co-founder and CTO at Testing Time, a startup which recruits test users for UX and market research. And before we talk about your company, I want to learn more about your personal background. You actually, during your master's in computer science, you spent some time at Amazy Labs, a former podcast guest. Tell us a bit more about your time there. Absolutely. Actually, it was uh, still Amazy. So the labs got added later on when they become um, a consultant or a consultant business. Um, back then, they were... Uh, project platform where you can find people uh, to do a project um, together. So like painting your house or something like this. And I developed a similarity approximation algorithm for them. So kind of a friend finder uh, for their platform. What sort of attracted you to join that company back then? I mean, now I have to say entrepreneurship, I guess. Um, It wasn't that clear in this word back then. Uh, but I met people that were driven with their goal of growing their platform um, and their thoughts always were like making the platform better every day and walk out in the evening that, and have achieved something and not just done some work. And they were really happy about what they were doing. That was very inspiring for me. So that was basically your first touch point with entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship per se. Yes, as my personal like professional um Work, yes, but I guess it's also like my grandfather uh, was already like an entrepreneur and stuff. So I I think I had this in a family way already before, but yes, in a professional way, that was my first touch point. And then you actually went on to work as a software engineer at the famous Doodle startup. It was there when you actually reportedly fell in love with growth. So what about it enticed you so much? So I think, first of all, great founders. So it was a great team that I joined um, there. I also met, by the way, Rito, my now co-founder at Testing Time. Um, They had uh, this amazing online platform that all my family knew about, um, all my friends knew it. So when you said, like, I work at Doodle, it wasn't like, what is that? What are they doing? It was (laughs) like, yeah, awesome. I know that one. That's amazing. So that's definitely one of the plus uh, there Mm -hmm. but it was really a growth platform there were millions of users using it thousands at any point in time so that was really great to work with like this massive user base so you know working at amazy working at doodle 
was then the obvious next step for you to start your own company or when was that decision made from your part? So yes, it was kind of this obvious next step. Um, I was really, really in love with, uh, with startup, with this growth, with uh, all, all of it that comes with it. Um, and then the exit happened of Doodle. So they got bought by Tomedia. I had some like, like phantom stock options. So I got kind of this Kickstarter money for myself. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the obvious moment and like, okay, now what, what am I, I going to do? And the obvious thing was finding something. That's amazing to sort of show people how your phantom stocks can actually be the fund part to start something new. Absolutely. And it was for sure like that was for me really the base of taking kind of this big step of saying like, I don't need any income for half a year, year maybe um, to like just try something on my own. But also at the same time, there must be somebody that kind of believes in you as well. Right. And my now co-founder um, felt this, that now it's time <laughs> for me to start something and asked me to kind of co-found with him testing them. How much money did you make in total there with the Phantom Stock program? So, I mean, it was less than a year's salary, yeah. um, but still uh, that's kind of what you need aside to really like jump in without like going all the risks. Great. I, I think that's really amazing because then you could just say, hey, I now have about a year's salary and I can just work on that idea and don't have to worry about any income. Absolutely. And that's exactly what happened. Get, it gave me really like this, not crazy much freedom, but enough freedom to really then just jump in and try something. Amazing. So then in 2015, you actually co-founded Testing Time together with Reto. You met at Doodle, but what made you actually a good team? Why was Reto the right co-founder for you? So I think um, he is like extremely persistent, uh, very eager. He's a busy bee, so he's really like um, working 24-7 kind of. And I mean, he basically also has this great idea of recruiting test users or creating a platform for it. Um, and I was more the enabler on the other side, like the tech guy that actually implemented a, scale, a scalable web application for it. Um, yeah. So uh, really the, the perfect addition, basically, complementary skill sets as a team. It's not only complementary skill sets. So Reto also um, studied computer science mm -hmm. at first, uh, but then moved away towards product and then more towards UX. Yeah. And now became more like the CEO <laughs> and um, all over the place for the company. Um, but for me, it's even actually great that we have some common ground. So there is some understanding of from his side of what's the tech. It's not to the detail, but it's some basic understanding that helps in many discussions and where the product goes. Yep. Would you say that this is really important to also have those common understandings or the common ground together with a similar background, but then still different skills and, and also, you know, advantages in your own fields? Definitely helps or it makes a lot of things easier. So I don't have to explain him hours and hours why we do certain things in the product or in, in the tech or in the web application. He has a basic understanding of why we need to upgrade libraries and stuff like this kind of, right? Um, but on the other hand, there must be a, like a very diverse interest uh, from both founders um, or like the whole team 
just to kind of cover all the topics that are around in your company. Yeah, and they constantly change depending on the stage of your company, yeah. right? I think you can you can build this also like by just um, giving each other a lot of space and mm -hmm. like trust each other with not understanding what the other one is doing, but it definitely makes things easier when both have certain common ground where they can understand. Great. And you actually started with market research and the recruitment of test users. So why was that the focus that you're interested in building a business around or ask differently, what was wrong with the existing solutions out there? So market research is a pretty old business, I would say, that at many places missed the wave of digitalization. Um, so for example, many of our competitors still just have a list of test users with an Excel list and then call them to screen them, etc. So there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of manual steps. And when Reto back even at Doodle, did user tests, he realized, oh, it's always such a pain to find their target group. And so he kind of said like, but there must be an Uber for this or something like an Airbnb, which is a platform where you can just, yeah. you can go online and hours later you have your like target group. And when he didn't find this, he, th he said, well, then let's build it. I think that's amazing. So you were basically solving your own problem back then. Absolutely. Um, that's absolutely the thing that we did here. So we realized, no, it's always a pain and even paying people out, etc. So it's even the sub steps and uh, not only finding those people, but managing them. It's really like um, herding cats right here. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. Would you say that solving your own problem is the best way to start a company or a startup? Well, it proves the need. So that's, I think, at least for one person in the universe, <laughs> there is this need. So at least this you don't have to prove. Um, but it's definitely only just the start. Um, it doesn't make, or it, it's not sure that then many people need it or a lot of people are willing to pay for it. But if you would be willing to pay for your own service, then that's at least one user. Exactly. <laughs> not enough to scale it though. <laughs> True, but uh, a great starting point, as you just mentioned. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, we often also like to talk about the timing. So if you think back to 2015, why was the timing right to start testing time back then? So I think there's two sides to this. So this one side is why was it the right timing for me to start a business? Yeah. So that's what I said, like um, the phantom stocks that got paid out. So I had some cushion, I could do it. Um, and I also didn't want to stay at Doodle within this Tomedia mm -hmm. um, construct. And then the other side, the business, uh, Rito already started this business uh, with like uh, just fake prototypes and etc. But he already had paying customers to prove kind of the concept and he needed somebody who really built a scalable web platform for it to actually grow it beyond his friend's circle. So it's really the combination of having enough money to focus on that idea without the need of an income, but also the first initial traction with paying customers. Absolutely. And to be clear, it's really like the starting a startup for me means also like having your idea and then prove it like level for level. Yeah. So it's kind of first you prove it, as I mentioned, like you own you, maybe you're, you're covering your own need. Mm -hmm. Then you find your first paying customers 
uh, which are maybe still friends that are just like helping you out <laughs> with it. Course. And then you have to build it beyond this level, etc., etc. So yes, and there was just some proof were already given and some more were up to come. And talking about your customers, who are actually your clients who use your services? So that can be any company with a UX team, user experience mm -hmm. team, or even product managers that uh, just want to really know what their target group um, thinks or needs. And we're actually not in a specific industry. We're across all industries, um, banks, but also telcos um, and B2C was that ever a challenge to not have this specific vertical focus for you? Absolutely. Um, so we actually even like on the sales side, we even um, said, no, now let's focus on just one industry, even though we could do it across all industries yeah. because you could just lose focus on um, like just targeting your potential clients. Exactly. And I guess you also have to use different messaging or sales pitches depending on the vertical that you're going into. Yes. So besides, this is not my um, my daily business, but we even like said, okay, that's the the group that has like big corporates, um, and then there's this one person freelancers that also order with us, and we target them completely different um, and with different instruments. Got it. And at the same time, you don't only have to find paying clients; you also have to find the actual target group. So, how do you recruit them? Yes, uh, that's the the downside of having a an online platform, kind of. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, to be honest, it has rarely the be the, been the problem that we had no users, test users um, in areas. But still, if we open up a new country, we have to make sure that there is supply and demand at the same level. Um, the Test users we find uh, in three different sources. One is organic, they, they Google for us, they figure out what they can do as a as a side job or something like this. Um, mm -hmm. Then the second one is really campaigning, LinkedIn ads, Facebook ads. We even did flyers on paper, etc., for certain areas. Um, and the third one is actually getting more and more important is referrals. So good test users can refer their friends for our platform. Amazing. So you basically, basically built your own flywheel there. Absolutely. Yeah. And who actually handles the payments? I mean, then the companies, they pay you to use your services, but then also the test groups, the users, they have to get paid. So how do you manage that part? Yes, it's actually one of the core features of our platform that we actually pay the test users and we pay them in real cash. So it's no vouchers and I don't know, Amazon coupons or something. It's really cash. And it's actually not that hard. It's by PayPal or with IBAN bank transactions. And, you know, in, in case of like Switzerland, for example, you know, if people do participate in, in your groups, how do they have to do that tax-wise? I mean, in some countries, you probably also have to be very aware that you don't have to pay social security taxes, etc. Is that something that can be very difficult to handle or to get an exemption? So yes, there is uh, in every country a different law. Uh, there is usually there is a minimal level, as you mentioned. In Switzerland, it's actually pretty high, with I think two thousand five hundred Swiss francs somewhere around there. Right. Um, and in the EU, there is a four hundred and fifty mini jobs, four hundred fifty euros mini jobs yeah. limit, and we just make sure that our test users are always below that okay. amount. So 
yeah, with the technical platform, that's actually one of your core advantages to make sure of that, I guess. Absolutely. And how do you actually determine the pricing, what the companies that use your services pay in the end? I guess you also have different categories because not every service costs the same. So I would like to refer here to an older episode of this podcast. Sure. My co-founder was actually here and talked a full hour about uh, our pricing That was scheme. really eye-opening for me. Um, but it's basically, it's based on the target group. So how difficult is a profile to find and also on how long the study then um, takes where, um, yeah, where the test user has to participate. And how do you determine these factors? I mean, is it based on your experience or do you have some additional data to determine how difficult someone is to recruit? So, I mean, our platform is um, growing every day. So we have more than a million test users. Uh, we have every test user has answered like around 100 and 150 questions. So there's not that many questions anymore that are totally new to our system. Um, but it's basically kind of like we ask 100 test users and check how many percent actually fit that target group. And then like the harder it gets, the more pricey it must be. Got it. That's actually quite a smart pricing. Again, thinking back what Reto said, I think he said value-based pricing. So you actually bring way more value to the client if you recruit the more difficult profiles. Absolutely. And that's also why a doctor obviously is more expensive um, to recruit than I say student. Right. It's just the amount of um, available <laughs> Test users is just different. Right. I would also like to talk about a few challenges that you encountered along the way of building testing time. If we focus on the on the first, on the beginnings, you mentioned that you first had to validate and win the first clients. So how do you actually validate your business idea and won the first clients? I know Reto was also the significant part here uh, along that journey, but I'm sure you also have some stories to share on how to validate a business idea. Absolutely. Uh, Rito did actually a fun trick here. Uh, so he did his master's study in human-computer interaction the inverse way around. So he started in the last semester and then went um, backwards. And that way he knew already like three years of alumni um, that all were perfect customers. So that was this um, human-computer interaction. I think nearly all of those um, students are now customers from us. So that's really perfect. That was a kind of a bootstrap, really like kickstarting the whole uh, customer base. That's a really smart move. <laughs> that, that was uh, really a help in the beginning. Um, but then it's like we mainly focus on inbound marketing, um, but also do hard sales, like cold mm -hmm. sales. Our former uh, board member was Mark Sammeyer from jobs.ch. So he was always pushing hard for like having salespeople on the ground and really opening doors. So there I would like to, to deep dive a bit. First, the inbound marketing part. So acquiring clients through inbound marketing, you know, it always sounds so easy, but how do you actually do that? Because that's a very long-term game, I imagine. Absolutely. And I can really double down on this. Uh, don't give up after some months. It's really paying out only after, I don't know, 12, 18 months maybe. So we built the biggest UX block in German speaking areas, still is. Um, and there we just like release blog posts. We even have like eBooks and stuff like this, just about the topic of UX. So mm -hmm. people find our platform, trust in our expertise in this area. So we're not just another market research company. Instead, we're kind of dedicated for UX. 
So people see us as an expert in the UX field. So we also know the problems of UX people in recruiting test users. Yeah. So that's how we build up the trust. Um, and yeah, so we invest there heavy, heavily. And what were actually the content pieces that you created? You mentioned eBooks, you mentioned blogs. Was there anything else that you did in, in terms of inbound marketing? So there is webinars as well. Yeah. Um, but I think it really started with like, we wrote blog posts. Um, we had a UX person internally, Reto is a UX expert. Uh, even I wrote a blog about like how the tech is built for our platform, nice. et cetera. So it was actually really like everybody's OKR to write one blog post a quarter <laughs> or something. Um, we got a bit wave away from that. Now we have a dedicated marketing team and we have external writers that are like paid for writing our content pieces nowadays. Is it something that you would recommend to do to outsource the writing of these blog pieces? I think at some point it's, it's not feasible anymore that all your team members are writing UX blogs, right. but we still write from time to time. So the, the UX person internally still writes from time to time a piece themselves. Um, but I mean, you don't have all the expertise in-house. So you, I think you have to at some point also right. have external writers. And if we think or focus on, on the blog post here, no, content-wise, what did you actually focus on? Did you really focus on, hey, I just want to share my point of view or just really want to add value to the potential readers? Or did you already think about, oh, what keywords do I have to use to really optimize for SEO, etc.? What was the focus there? So we're still entrepreneurs here. So obviously we did the second one. <laughs> so we really um, saw what are the top notch keywords that are searched for and then wrote articles about it. Mm -hmm. um, we never went for the like uh, easy pieces that are just like not really adding um, some real value instead yeah. just um, have all the keywords in it and not adding something. We really did like deep dives on topics but the topics themselves were obviously um, selected towards like what's hot at the moment. And right. uh, yeah, so cover that. What tools do you use to uh, gather the keywords that were relevant for you? Uh, I think back then it was Google Trends, something yeah. like this. Uh, but uh, I'm, to be honest, not involved in today's sure. uh, tools anymore. And then when you actually you know, finished writing the blog article, it's still two different pairs of shoes to have the blog article online and to have it optimized for the keywords and drive traffic to your website. But then eventually you also want to get paying customers out of that, right? So how do you make that switch? Because then that's probably the difficult part to also have a conversion based on your blog articles to paying customers. Absolutely. And we have like a classic funnel built up with HubSpot um, and there people like are getting rated or like leads are getting rated, the more content they read, the more um, hot they get for our sales to actually at some point jump in. Um, we even like send them pieces of content. So mm -hmm. they, they have like this uh, marketing campaigning, the emails that they get, these automated emails that they get uh, like, hey, last week you read this, this might interest you as well. Um, how about now downloading this ebook and then the week later is like, hey, did you know we also recruit test users? How about trying it out here? Something like this. So there's these journeys that we build for our customers or leads to become customers in the end. Perfect. And now that's actually a perfect segue because you also mentioned the sales team before. So that's quite an interesting combination. You have the inbound marketing part, 
but then you also have the very traditional, you know, boots on the ground sales team. How do they exactly collaborate together and where does then the sales team come in and what's the importance of the sales team? So the leads are getting rated the hotter they get, but also we do some sometimes manual, sometimes it's a bit more automated, but we do categorize them in like non-ICP. ICP means ideal customer profile. Mm -hmm. So for us, this means they have a dedicated UX team, maybe at least three people in total, like 500 employees, some, some measures like this. Yeah. And then um, the non-ideal uh, customer profiles, they are getting aut the automated way. So they're getting just pushed more and more towards the order form. Yeah. Uh, while the, the ideal customers, it's like bigger corporates with bigger teams, UX dedication, etc., they are getting contacted by ourselves at some point when they are hot enough. Right. And what happens then? They enter the classic sales process with like a demo and then a potential contract or how do they have to imagine that? So... Back in the days, we still used to actually even visit in person. Okay. So that happened. Um, we even had slides, etc. I think nowadays it's less slides and less meeting. It's more just helping, mm -hmm. kind of helping them to understand what we do, helping them to understand how to order in the end, uh, what are pitfalls. Um, usually with even especially big buy, uh, customers, it's usually the bigger problem, like how can we um, how can we pay with you guys? How can you be our supplier official? So it's more like filling out all these supplier forms, etc. I think that's a big part of sales. And you also mentioned the ideal customer profile and what you were looking for there. Where do you get that information from? Did they have to fill that in in a lead form or did you just look them up on LinkedIn and then determine if they would be a good fit or not? That's what I meant with like more or less automated. Yeah. So yes, there is forms. Uh, when you want to download an ebook, you have to fill that out. So right. it's nice and all shiny directly in HubSpot. Uh, but there is also moments where you just find somebody, some email or whatever that they gave us. And then you have to do this uh, manually. So we have a freelancer doing this and enriching all that information, etc. Perfect. I'm, I'm really like, it's so powerful what you just shared, your process. I think that's a really, really great story to also take away and think about, oh, what can I actually apply from this in, in my own business? And if you think about that, the setup that you have with the inbound marketing focus with a heavy content load, but also the sales team on top of that, for what kind of companies would you recommend that setup? So definitely for B2B. So the whole work with like on the ground sales team, etc. I would never do for a B2C uh, yeah, right. That's just not worth it. That's not worth it. Um, even for us, it's like smaller business are not worth it mm -hmm. to really like have somebody running after them so even we have to like focus on the really big corporates or yeah. big clients is there a cer certain contract value how you determine whether it's worth to put in the sales force or or not no because a single order can be still just small even if it's a big company right and doing this regularly it's more like a yearly budget that they okay. have for actually dedicated user research yeah. That's what really determines then in the end um, if it's worth it for us or not. Perfect. But that's hard to figure out, actually. Yeah, you and probably have to talk to them to find it out, right? Yeah, Nobody exactly. would fill that in in a form. <laughs> I doubt it, yeah. <laughs> so now we talked about the sales growth challenges, but of course, there are also technical challenges that come with growth. So from your experience, what were some major technical challenges that you faced with the growing business of testing time? 
So I think it's uh, like what technologies you pick in the beginning. Yeah. So even for us, uh, it was now seven years. So it's not like uh, done in a year. I doubt that a lot of startups do it um, within like uh, a short period of time. Um, so think of what technologies you pick. So they should survive at least the duration of your startup. Um, so pick well-known frameworks, co uh, programming languages and the like. Even for us, it was hard. We picked uh, AngularJS, which kind of went out of business uh, soon after. So we had to migrate the whole platform to Angular. So that's like a huge cost that comes in. Yeah. So take care of this. Um, me personally, I'm a strong believer in not doing everything yourself. Use cloud services that you can just uh, use all their features. Don't build your own CRM. Don't build your, I don't know, own phone call center, etc. Right. use solutions that are out there, uh, even though they maybe sometimes are pricey, like HubSpot, mm -hmm. but pricey maybe also means a lot of features. So um, I'm a strong believer in like buying services instead of building everything yourself. Here beyond HubSpot, what were some of the, you know, best decisions that you made to externalize them to to buy the services that you needed? So we communicate a lot with SMS uh, with our test users because it's still a very universal way uh, that everybody has. True. Um, so, I mean, we have a very trustworthy SMS provider that like does it internationally. You can find easily a Swiss version that is very re reliable, but then you have to send it to Lithuania or Bulgaria and stuff. Right. Then it's like you have to find like partners that you will at some point also scale up mm -hmm. you have to I, as a swiss it's actually a bit easier because you have like already like uh, multiple languages in your platform for sure yeah. um, but think that your providers are also international businesses that they are maybe even top notch even if they're maybe a bit more expensive maybe use them because at some point you will need the UK, Germany and all those countries. And it's just nice if your providers already have this built in instead of like finding new providers every time you add a new country. Yeah. Anything else that comes to mind in terms of services that you would recommend? So I hear really a lot from other entrepreneurs that they built their own CRM because mm -hmm. all the CRMs were not like perfectly matching for them. <laughs> yeah. I think spend some time um, to really like customize those tools. They often have like lots and lots of configurations that you can set up and make it perfect for yourself. So I would really spend on this. I, we also built like one platform like testingtime.com and then it connects to a lot of other services. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe a bit tech, but um, make sure that you separate those other services nicely from your web application. So you can also switch them. Because as I mentioned, like SMS, um, we had first a Swiss solution and switched it to an international. But because it was nicely separated, yeah. it was kind of a one week's work and easy to do. While if it's everywhere in your code base, it's going to be messy. hard to yeah. switch. Yeah. I think that's a very great recommendation. And also a question, you know, from the technical perspective, is there, if you now look back to the past seven years, is there something that you would do differently today? So yes, um, I back then chose MongoDB. So it's a database, um, a NoSQL database. Mm -hmm. 
that is super easy because it's not static so it, you can change it a lot and it makes you very flexible mm -hmm. uh, but now kind of it also has this drawdown uh, it, um, it's negative sides because it's kind of not that scalable anymore and uh, we have to kind of make sure that it's uh it's, it's a lot of workarounds to make it happen okay um so i would i would tell myself back then like no go with the standard <laughs> and again think about the scalability of the solution right as you mentioned before with the international sms mm -hmm. provider have that scalability in mind from day one basically absolutely um let, let's be honest i mean your startup is yes you should um you should focus on what's really needed now so spend your time there but never close doors in terms of scalability but i mean that that was a given after my time at doodle right. i knew that there will be times where you have like thousands of users on your platform yeah. so get ready for that that was like the perfect training for you absolutely <laughs> and i mean imagine how horrible it would be if you had like this one day you have this one big moment in the press or i don't know whatever happens and people um, run to your website and your website goes down it's the yeah highest cost you can even imagine right yeah now i also like to talk about how you actually went in the national so obviously the swiss market was just a start for you and you wanted to have further growth so you went international i'm sure there were certain pitfalls and learnings that you took away from going international so please share them with us mm -hmm. so we touched it before like the legal boundaries in terms of like test user payments yep. so that was for us always a thing that we had to check um but uh, once you have figured that out, it's actually okay. Mm -hmm. um, when we went to Germany, we thought like, hey, let's found a local entity. So we, um, we can hire people there and we can do real business there. To be honest, it complicates a lot of things. So I would try to avoid it as long as you can. I know mm -hmm. at some point you have to, uh, especially like hiring people that don't are not okay with being freelancers or something, then you have to like really do it. Right. Um, but as long as you don't need to, maybe use Upwork instead to like hire, have hire people hired as freelancers, etc. Um, because like also the bookkeeping, finances, reporting, everything gets more complicated uh, if you have local entities everywhere. Yeah, it's just also a huge additional overhead that you sign up for. Absolutely. And just because your e-banking in Swiss banks is nice and shiny, don't <laughs> expect it to be the same in the UK company uh, banks or something like. It's really, um, it's different worlds. Uh, yeah. You learn a lot, but it's also like complicating a lot of stuff. Absolutely. Now then something very interesting happened. Last year in 2021, you actually got acquired by Nordstadt Group. What was the motivation to sell? Was that your plan from day one? Yes, we are a startup. Uh, we are also baked by Worth VC. So uh, the moment you sign with a VC, this also means at some point you're looking for an exit, most probably. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also the dream of Reto and me. So it's really like a founder's dream. We wanted to do this. We wanted to build a startup from ground to exit. Um, so yes, it was uh, a given from day one, um, but on the other side, it's also um, opportunistic. So we got approached and then started the whole process. So please walk us through that process. How did that exactly happen? So you got approached, so you didn't approach them. You, you got approached yourself. What happens then? So they reached out to you and said, hey, we want to buy your company. 
or how they have to imagine them? So as in many cases, it often happens with um, either clients or partners um, before. Um, it's actually the first talks we had was not with the, car with the now buyer. It was two American companies that uh, approached us and said like, hey, we would be basically interested in acquiring you. Um, different reasons like moving into Europe, um, tech, uh, panel size, etc. Like um, all of the assets were somewhere valued. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't work out with them. But that showed us like that the market is maybe now ready for, for buying us or our company is ready to be bought uh, both ways. And that's the moment when we started the official M&A process. And how do you do that? Did you get any support or M&A advisor on board to manage that process? So as I mentioned, we had like already the first rounds with Worth VC and uh, Worth has also like those workshops where you learn a lot of stuff left and right. Um, totally recommendable, by the way. Um, and one of them was also about M&A and they have a trusted partner there that does uh, the M&A, it's Menalto for us. They did our whole process. We then went, uh, we actually did a, a screening. So multiple M&A companies could kind of apply or like make a pitch. Nice. And then we picked the best or the most appealing for us. And they then did an outreach to like, or together with us, a bigger list with potential buyers mm -hmm. and then did an outreach to the most important ones. And out of this, we got some interesting talks and talks led to um, a more structured way of um, of an exit or an acquisition. And then when you actually have these conversations, right, at a certain point, they also have to submit a non-binding offer. So how do you negotiate and come up with the right price for your company? I mean... You as founders, you know, you put in a lot of blood, sweat and tears in your company. Mm -hmm. So you probably have a certain expectation about the price. How do you communicate that? And how do you then get a commitment and the potential price and offer from a potential buyer? So for actually for us, it was um, in the beginning, we still had multiple um, kind of not not really offers, but mm -hmm. interest from different parties. So you could play with them a bit. So actually, at the moment until we had a non-binding offer was actually a weekend from the now buyer because yeah. they like really uh, were into it and really like um, did a good job there in the beginning already. Um, and yes, I mean, there is some numbers that you can see, right? There is a combination of market fit, revenue, uh, maybe gross profit margin, something like this. Uh, if you are, then maybe profitability like EBITDA, right. uh, which we weren't. <laughs> so that was not a good uh, number for us. <laughs> um, but I mean, yes, you have these numbers around, uh, but in the end, it's really like about having multiple offers maybe is the biggest price driver. Yeah, then you can really negotiate against each other, basically. Yeah. And for us, to be honest, it was also always great. We could also just not sell. So it was really like, yes, there was this goal of selling at some point, but there was no financial need. So it wasn't like we go bankrupt if we don't sell it now or we had to do another finance round. No, we didn't. We like we had this very good uh, situation that we would actually go profitable this year anyway, even right. without an exit. So for us, it was really like, OK, yeah, if you want, you 
can buy it, but we don't need to sell it for sure. I think that's really powerful because then you have all the negotiation power because you can say, hey, if the offer is right, we can sell, but we don't have to. We can also easily continue on our own. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure that this is not something that you can you could hide. Uh, like in the whole due diligence, they see all your books. They know exactly if you're in need of money or not. So right. um, this is definitely a good moment to do uh, an exit. And then when the first offer came in over the weekend, how did you feel? It's actually a very um, plus minus moment. <laughs> so, I mean, it's something that you have been working for a long time and mm. I mean, it's not yet binding. It's not yet anything, right? It's yeah. uh, not signed or, or so. So it's it's definitely a sh it's showing appreciation. So, you know, you have built something that somebody's actually really willing to pay quite a bunch of money. Yeah. Um, so that, that was actually, I mean, definitely a positive feeling. Um, but also you, you realize like, oh, now it's next level. I always compared having a startup with like a computer game where you have like a level and then you fight a boss in the end. Right. But then it's not over, but you just start the next level and mm -hmm. the next level and that's from the first customer and then it's the first employee and then it's the first, I don't know, uh, whatever step is coming. And this was definitely one more step or maybe it was in the middle of a level, I'm not sure. Um, but the whole exit definitely was a, a hard a fight um, to get through. When you read the number, did it meet your expectation or even exceed it? No, it didn't. It didn't? <laughs> I think it never does, right? Okay. <laughs> so you can always, I mean, that's the first offer, right? So right. it's uh, always about negotiations. And to be honest, it's, it's really not only about that number. Yeah. It's all the other stuff that's coming with it. Is it earnouts? Is it upfront money? Is it, um, I don't know how much downside protection within an earnout you have, et cetera. So there's so many things that you have on the table to negotiate. So I cannot tell you that the number was just mind blowing or something, but it was definitely something we wanted to investigate further. So okay. it was not disappointing, that's for sure. Okay, so it didn't close the door. <laughs> no, it didn't, <laughs> obviously. <And laughs> obviously, yeah, of course. And at the same time, you know, such an M&A process can also be quite exhausting because you still have a business to run on the side. So how do you deal with that additional workload and potential also the pressure that you face there? Absolutely. And just to be very clear, this is the hardest thing we have done during the whole um, seven years of having testing time. Um, I was the luckier one that the whole exit uh, process was not on my shoulders mainly. I was just the assistant to Rito, so it was on Rito, and really like uh, impressive what he has done there. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it takes longer than you expect. I can also guarantee you yeah. that. So for us, it was I think the first um, the first kind of milestone that we wanted to do the exit was in May, and in the end, it was September. So it's kind of, it's really like, it's taking longer than you expect. So also don't burn yourself out. Also Reto took one week off at somewhere in the summer um, for like a silent retreat actually, um, just to kind of energize, get back energized. Um, it's also important talks that you have. So it's not like you have can have half mental capacity during those negotiations and everything. Um, due diligence is hard. You have to be precise. You should not forget stuff. So really take care of yourself during this whole process. And don't. it's really like a marathon and not a sprint. 
Yeah, that's a good reminder. So it's not like an overnight exit. Then you also decided to stay on board after the sale. So I also wonder, you know, now you sold the company, but you're still part of the company, but now technically you have a boss basically. So how does that feel? Did anything change from your perception, from your motivation to go to work in the morning? So still it's the same motivation at the moment. We have an earnout uh, that we're in. We are, um, and we are in the lucky position that the earnout goals are exactly what we um, have set in our goals and budgets, etc., for the next years. Mm -hmm. So it's not like our game is uh, driven by them. They just said like, hey, we like you guys. We think you have a great idea, great strategy, do it, yeah. kind of. So that's uh, that's a cool side. Uh, nevertheless, I think it is it is a different feeling at some, some point. There is, uh, especially what I feel is there is a ceiling somewhere. Mm -hmm. Before it was always like you could also become a unicorn somewhere or whatever, the right? Limit. Uh, there is also no time limit or something like this. Yeah. Never was, and now there is certain goals to achieve, uh, as a ceiling where you can go to. And but to be honest, we we have a Norwegian buyer, and they are like culturally etc. very close to Swiss, so it's not like um, we are. It has completely changed. It's mostly yeah. still us driving everything. Um, and with a very similar cultural mindset. And I also wonder on an emotional level, you know, after you put your signature on, on the selling contract, basically, what did that do to you emotionally? Was it difficult to let go or was it really the joy and the celebration that overwhelmed you? I just want to know how was the emotional situation for you as a personally as a founder? So I think right in the beginning of signing there is two things so first of all you're at least happy that the process ended <laughs> because it is very intense yeah. so at least you know like this this whole um, weight on your shoulders is now gone mm -hmm. um, but in general it, it's definitely joy I mean that's really like it's it's the goal um, from day one as we said before right it's really like what we wanted to achieve and as a startup founder, at least as a first time startup founder, all your assets are on one stock, right? Yeah. You have this one company, all my belongings were like within it. So there is definitely this like relief of like at least diversify a bit um, yeah. what you own. Friends of mine, like they maybe worked afterwards, bought a house, did something, um, had a year off and traveled the world or something like this. Yeah. All my assets were all within this company and now I can diversify a bit. So that's definitely a relief. Um, but also like it has been an amazing journey. I don't want to miss any day. So yes, it's ending this journey. So there is also a bit of um, a downside. But really the positive overweights clearly. By far, absolutely. Now, of course, everybody wonders for how much money did you actually sell the company? How much money did you make personally out of that deal? Yeah, so, so we're Swiss, we don't talk money. <laughs> um, but I, for myself, I have a kind of a basic income for myself. That was actually also one of my goals. Um, so my next startup, if it will be one, um, is not needed to like 
to make money within the first year. You're That's really sure. be now in the position to repeat the process that you did after the Doodle exit. I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, at the moment, it's still like I mean, I'm still in this full mindset of doing this earn out and um, right. making bring testing time where I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I I definitely don't say no. Um, it could be, and it was amazing. So why not repeating it? So. Yeah. And what did you actually do with the money that you made personally? Did you invest it in, in stocks or did you buy any real estate or any cryptos or what did you do there on a personal level? So, yes, I did a lot of things uh, that you just mentioned, uh, but like just on an experimental level, mm-hmm. um, kind of like, yeah, I spent some some bucks on cryptos. I bought some real estate but parts of it kind of like crowdhouse.ch has like one of these offerings for example so yes i diversify as i mentioned like i try to um to not have this everything in one basket anymore because that was also like just a big risk yeah i try one more time um can you give us an indication six seven or eight figure personal net worth change no i don't okay i had to try (laughs) Now let's focus on the future. So now, of course, you joined forces with a giant in the space, basically present in five countries. What do you have planned together now? What is on your roadmap over the next few months with testing time? The main goal is to become the qualitative recruitment partner all over Europe. Mm -hmm. The dominant one um, together with uh, Norstad, our buyer. They mainly focus on quantitative studies, so surveys and the like, and they have bought us kind of to really digitize uh, their their whole qualitative. So that means like meeting person, meeting in person, mm-hmm. really one on one, where you interview people, uh, stuff like this. That's that's called qualitative research, and that's we are becoming the one num- the one thing uh, for them, the one service for them. And what we are currently working on is to like uh, eradicate the whole back and forth between a customer and our uh, customer service. Mm-hmm. So we empower our customers to actually do smaller changes on their orders themselves and kind mm-hmm. of even select the test users out of a list, etc. So yeah. really empowering customers. But with the whole uh, internationalization, there will be more languages, more currencies, um, etc. And main focus on the Netherlands and the Nordics. Nice. So I see you'll certainly not get bored over the next few months. Absolutely not. <laughs> that was never something I feared. <laughs> now, you already mentioned maybe there will be a startup from you in the future. Maybe not. We don't know yet. However, you could also invest your own money into the next generation of startups and basically repeat and basically build your own testing time mafia because you came out of the doodle mafia. Now, maybe there will be a testing time mafia. What do you think? Would that be interesting for you? So I think this happens anyway. The whole, like the testing time mafia um, theory, I totally believe in it because like working in a startup inspires you to become an entrepreneur afterwards um, or at least a lot of people. I don't think that all of our employees will at some point start uh, a right. found startup, but we already have people that became entrepreneurs afterwards after leaving um, testing time. I also believe that especially like, like people had also phantom stock options with us. So that also maybe empowers some of them now to kind of do this um, bold move. 
Um, but I totally believe in startups. I totally believe in building businesses uh, and not speculating with your money. So uh, I'm sure that some of my um, earnout will will find its way back into startups in Switzerland. And I really think this is so crucial, right? To have a nice liquidation event where money comes back into the ecosystem, but then you're reinvested into the next generation or as you did it when you, you know, finished that doodle, where you then basically started your own company and used that money to bootstrap the beginning. So that's so crucial and really the indicator of a healthy startup ecosystem. So to wrap up this episode, I want to ask you about your personal resources and gadgets recommendation. That can be anything from books, blogs, podcasts, or also real physical gadgets that make your life a bit easier. Anything comes to mind? So first of all, I'm totally into podcasts. So yes, um, listen to a lot of stuff while you're on the bike or while you're, I don't know, in the train or something. I think yeah. it uh, widens your mind a lot. Mm -hmm. Like you learn a lot. Uh, and I think especially as an entrepreneur, you should maybe not know only about UX and tech. Maybe you should also know how the economy works or... I don't know. It's it's really like it's so many facets uh, as an entrepreneur. So it helps to have like this a lot of um, information left and right. Um, one of my exit gifts that I gave myself was a, a robot vacuum cleaner at home, <laughs> and I can totally recommend it. It's the best to come home and it's all clean and nice and shiny. <laughs> nice. And also in terms of podcasts, what would you recommend there? I think that's really interesting to also cover. So. Um, I listen to two uh, like of these daily podcasts, like with NZZ from um, Accent um, right. and from Tamedia the same. So there's just one topic a day. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes about the conflict uh, between European and Union and Russia. The next one is about cryptos. The next one is, nice. it's really like left and right. So it really like widens your mindset. I think yeah. it's really, really helpful and just also fun. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I would recommend in German Alles Gesagt from Die Zeit, which is just one guest every month. Mm -hmm. um, but they take like eight hours or something. Wow, so it's nice. crazy, but yeah. it's uh, a lot of interesting guests. So you have to, to ride your bike a lot to listen to the full episode there. Absolutely, but you can also like speed up the podcast oh, uh, yeah. speed bit, then you're <laughs> I see. getting there faster. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Now for the very last part, we have some rapid fire questions for you. So I either give you a short question or a, a choice to make, and you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Ready. Product or sales? Absolutely product. I mean, you have to say that, right? <laughs> Obvious. Where do you go to relax and recharge? So I play soccer, I drive the mountain bike, or I also signed up for a cross country marathon in Engadin. So really a lot of sports to, uh, to recover. Yes, I have to listen to all the podcasts, right? Fair, yeah. <laughs> bootstrapping or VC money? Um, I hope in the future a bit more bootstrapping or a bit longer, um, yeah. but VC is definitely an option if needed. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Well, that depends a lot on my son, um, but uh, this night I think it was eight hours, so all good. Great. And the last one, Norway or Switzerland? I'm Switzerland. That's I'm an easy one. Switzerland, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, Oliver, thank you so much for stopping by. It was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for sharing all your impressive journey. And best of luck for the future. 
Thanks. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.